0: Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be uh, with you here again uh, this morning, and uh, to share in God's word. It's good to be here in the flesh. I'm afraid I don't quite have the uh, the film star looks of uh, Drew, uh, so you're probably better seeing me uh, in the in the flesh uh, than on the the big uh, the big screen. I want to uh, turn uh, this morning to God's word, and to Matthew. Uh, chapter five uh, passage we're going to uh, refer to a, a little bit uh, later on So Matthew uh, chapter 5 um, verse uh, verse 17. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. This is the word of God. Baroness uh, Boothroyd, who is uh, Betty Boothroyd, was formerly Speaker of the House of Commons, recently uh, said, Never in my parliamentary experience have I witnessed such a collapse of the people's trust in a government that promised so much and so quickly, and is now groping for desperate solutions to problems that said would not arise, or if they did, they would easily be resolved. Of course, at this time, as we look across uh, the Atlantic, uh, we see that it's not only the British political system that has trust issues. But the collapse of trust uh, is not just an issue for the relationship between governments and their people, but all around us in society today we witness the collapse of trust In the last few years, the phrase fake news has entered our vocabulary. People have trust issues with the media, and of course they have trust issues with social media. We have trust issues today with those who are experts. People today do not believe experts. One writer says we live in a world in which the idea persists, that experts are mad geniuses with no moral compass who constantly need their egos stroked. Of course, in the age of the scam, we do not trust anyone calling us from a bank, never mind a millionaire prince whose emails tell us that he just wants to give us his money. Marriages, they run to all kinds of difficulties, and they can often endure all kinds of difficulties. But what finally causes them to collapse is the collapse of trust. Why do we have trust issues in society? Well, of course, at the heart of trust issues are relationships. And in particular, relationships that do not function as they ought to function or as we would want them to function. We cannot trust the person who is disrespectful towards us. We cannot trust the person who wishes us harm. We cannot trust the person who is unfaithful, who steals, who deceives, who is motivated by envy. In short, we have trust issues because people break the Ten Commandments. Well, last time uh, we began together to look at the Ten Commandments, there we saw that God had rescued Israel from the land of Egypt and that he now establishes a covenant with them as his treasured possession. Under the terms of that covenant, they must obey God fully. This is the the solemn and binding contract that God makes with his people. If they are to enjoy all the benefits of living in a right relationship with God, well then they must obey him. We saw last time the importance of understanding what is happening here. That obedience to the law is not the basis for Israel becoming God's people. It's the basis of their living as God's people. It's the basis of maintaining a a healthy relationship with God. It's the basis of living in a flourishing society. And as such, the Ten Commandments are not a great burden, but they are a gracious gift from God. They are indeed, as we've been thinking in this little series They are indeed God's traveling mercies for us. They are God's gifts to us so that society might function properly, so that society might flourish. And that becomes all the clearer, I think, this morning as we examine the second group or the second table of the law as it's known. The first table, commandments 1 to 4, as we saw last time, deal with our relationship with God. They explain how we might love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. While this second table, Commandments 5 to 10, deal with how we might love our neighbor as ourselves. People often have negative reactions to God's law. Sometimes even Christians have a negative reaction to God's law. But as we consider these commandments this morning, six—sorry, 5 through to 10, uh, let's consider them and keep in mind this question. What kind of a society would we live in if people obeyed these commandments? What kind of a society would we live in if people obeyed these commandments? So let's turn uh, to the fifth commandment this morning. Here God says, honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Here's a commandment of of universal significance touching the most basic of human relationships. We've all had parents. Of course, it's possible not to have known one's biological parents. Yet, generally speaking, we all know what it is to have parents. And the universal significance of this commandment appears further, in that it is a commandment without limitations. It does not say, honour your father and mother while you're still a child. It does not say, honour your father and mother if you think they did a good job raising you. The commandment doesn't have these or any other limitations. And the essence of this commandment is the responsibility of children to their parents. And of course, we live in a society today that thinks very differently about the parent-child relationship. We only think in terms of the responsibility of the parent towards the child. And whilst God's word does not deny the importance of that, it actually begins with the responsibility of children towards their parents. And this actually includes grandparents, as there is no Hebrew word For grandparents, included in the terms father and mother, is the idea of succeeding generations of parents. And the responsibility that we have towards our parents and grandparents is to honour them. Well, what does that mean, to honour your parents? Obedience to the fifth commandment begins with the attitude that children adopt towards their parents. Children ought to hold their parents in high esteem. We ought to recognize that the idea of the family and the the order within the family is something that is ordained by God himself. And as such, we shouldn't only honor our own parents in particular, but we should honor the whole idea of parenthood. We should seek to uphold the idea of the important role that parents play and the respect that they ought to be afforded. Now, such an idea strikes at the very heart of our society. As you know, we live in a very anti-authoritarian age. The idea that people honour their parents is one that's largely scoffed at. Indeed, the, the popular portrayal of maturity, if we're to believe the television and the movies, is one where children mature as they rebel against their parents. As they push them away, as they go their their own way and break free from their parents. It's part of our culture of individualism, where everyone looks out for themselves. No one has any regard for parents or for grandparents. And yet as Christians we should go against the grain of our culture. We should honor our parents. We should honor our grandparents. We should acknowledge their importance. We should acknowledge their wisdom and their place within the structure of the family. And as the dynamics of that relationship change with our parents over the years as we move from childhood to adolescence to young adulthood to adulthood, we need to work out what does it mean for us to continue to honour our parents and grandparents. As Paul writes, this is the first commandment. With a promise. It is a promise that we will flourish if we obey this commandment. Society will flourish. And we will enjoy God's blessing whenever we honor our parents. And so we might ask, what kind of a society would we be living in if children honored their parents? The sixth commandment then says you shall not murder or you shall not commit homicide. And this commandment prohibits the unlawful taking of human life. That's rooted in scripture's teaching that as human beings we are made in the image of God. Therefore to take a human life in any circumstances is a matter of the utmost gravity. Furthermore, in any society in which all human life is not valued on this basis that we are made in the image of God, is to live in a society that is corroded at its very heart. We see the gravity of this commandment in Scripture where the taking of another person's life is a capital offense. That if someone is murdered, we read as we go through the law, well then their own life is forfeited, their own life is to be taken in exchange. But this commandment also forbids manslaughter. That is, it forbids killing, which results not from premeditated actions, but also from careless, accidental killing. This commandment tells us, when it is unpacked further in the law, that we must take care That we do not engage in any activity or any course of action that might cause the death of another person. So this commandment places the onus on us to be careful in all that we do. That we do not put the lives of others at risk. Therefore, for example, we need to think about obeying those laws that the government has put in place to protect life. the health and safety laws that are out there in society to product regulations to speed limits to regulations surrounding COVID. The onus is on us not to do anything that would cause another individual to lose their life. And when we turn to the New Testament we find in those words of Jesus that we we read this morning, that this commandment actually then goes even further than our our harmful actions. It goes to the attitudes of our hearts. Jesus said, I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says you fool will be in danger of hellfire. So this commandment he's telling us is concerned not only with, with physical acts leading to death, but with anger, with hatred with the contempt that we might show for our fellow human beings. when We speak contemptuously of another person when we assassinate their character. It is a form of murder. And that is because we attack the value and the worth that that person has as someone who is ultimately made in the image of God. Jesus especially draws our attention to how living with with such anger and such hatred as we saw this morning in our hearts towards another person, poisons our fellowship with them. It poisons our fellowship with them if they are another believer. We cannot have a fellowship with another believer while holding them in contempt, while wishing them harm, while they are careless of whether or not they live or die. Sometimes we even persuade ourselves that, oh, I don't hate that person. I really don't care. But actually we're holding them in contempt. And such attitudes render our worship ineffective. The Apostle James in chapter 3 and verse 9 and 10 says, With the tongue we praise our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. We cannot truly worship God while we're holding someone else in contempt. We cannot truly worship God while bad-mouthing others. Jesus says such worship is a sham. James says such worship is hypocrisy. Furthermore, we cannot truly worship God while despising any of His image-bearers. We cannot truly worship God while we hold racist attitudes, whilst we hold sexist attitudes, whilst we hold sectarian attitudes. This commandment goes beyond physical acts of violence and it searches, doesn't it, the deep recesses of our hearts. We might not entertain this morning committing murder, But if we take Jesus' words seriously, then to regard another human being with hatred and anger and contempt, that's the equivalent of committing murder, he's telling us. Again, let's ask ourselves, what kind of a society would we live in if people valued all human life? Because as we look at one another, we see above all else that here is another person made in the image of God. God then states in the, the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. This is the first time we find the word adultery in the Bible. Yet it's clear from Genesis that the sanctity of marriage was recognized long before the commandment. And that the proper conduct of sexual relationships was to be within marriage. And forbidding adultery, the commandment forbids adultery. Engaging in any sexual relationship outside of marriage. This is made explicit in the codification of the law in Leviticus chapter 20. And there we see how this commandment is given its practical outworking. Where all forms of sexual conduct outside of marriage are condemned. Adultery, incest, homosexual acts, or any other form of extramarital sex. And again, in the New Testament, we see that adultery and sexual immorality are condemned. We should not, however, consider this to be a completely negative commandment. For the commandment is also an affirmation of marriage. That God's intention for marriage is that it should take place between one man and one woman and in a relationship that is for life. It is exclusive. It should not be violated either by one of the partners in the marriage or by any third party. Then we should notice that the commandment is an affirmation too of sexual expression. It does not say that sex is wrong in the same way that it says that murder is wrong. Sexual desire is good. It is God given, but it has a specific context. Such is the power of human sexuality that if you wrench it from its proper context, it can destroy lives, it can destroy relationships, it can strike at the very fabric of society itself. And someone has said, whenever we conduct ourselves sexually, however we please, well then it's like grabbing a sleeping tiger by the tail. Again, in the New Testament, we see from Jesus' words, in that passage we read together from Matthew chapter 5, that once again the commandment goes beyond the physical act. Jesus says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, adultery involves not only the act of adultery, but it involves giving in to the lusts of our hearts. Here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is clear. The formal observance of the law is not enough. If our hearts remain impure, if we succumb to our lustful desires. Don Carson, a well-known speaker and author, says of Jesus' words here, This is not a prohibition of the normal attraction which exists between man and woman, but of the deep-seated lust which consumes and desires, which in the imagination attacks and rapes, which mentally contemplates and commits adultery. We must not, Jesus says, give in to lust because that is adultery. Physical adultery, like all human activities, actually it doesn't just happen it begins with the the contemplation of desire it's followed by wooing and it's ultimately consummated as the occasion arises adultery doesn't just happen it is planned you see adultery is usually committed not with some chance stranger but with a work colleague a friend of our husband or a friend of our wife Someone we socialize with. The results from our plans. Chance encounters that are strategically engineered. Calculated flirting. Opportunities concocted to be alone with that person. What's the antidote? Paul says the antidote is this. Flee. Flee. Run as far and as fast as you can. Again, We must ask, what kind of a society would we we live in if everyone obeyed this commandment, if marriage was honoured and lustful desires restrained? The eighth commandment, God says, you shall not steal. This commandment clearly forbids our taking that which belongs to another person. This is the clearest sense in which the the commandment is applied in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Crimes of theft and robbery and burglary are clearly forbidden. But this is a commandment with other implications if we take it seriously. The word for steal might equally be translated kidnap. Some commentators believe that this is the primary meaning actually of this commandment. You shall not kidnap. But whether or not it's the primary meaning of the commandment, it is widely agreed that it does forbid kidnapping. It forbids us depriving anyone of their personal freedom and using them for our economic gain. This had particular significance, of course, in a culture where slavery was the norm. And while today we may not own slaves, this commandment reminds us that we should not be seeking to benefit from the exploitation of others. Those who are forced into exploitative conditions. We should not be careless of that. Or seek to gain from it. It also prohibits any kind of fraud. In other words, we engage in stealing whenever we seek dishonest gain. That of course means we shouldn't defraud the government. We need to pay our taxes, as Romans thirteen reminds us. It prevents what we would call today white-collar crime. This may involve fiddling the books, so-called creative accounting, insider trading, computer hacking, or any other kind of sophisticated fraud. It's wrong. Contrary to the views of some, there are no victimless crimes here. Nor should we, in the course of business, exploit others or oppress others. Nor should we engage in bribery, either in the giving or accepting of bribes. Again, that's an attempt to financially exploit someone else for our personal benefit. Again, what kind of a world would we live in if we conducted ourselves honestly when it comes to our financial dealings, when it comes to respecting the the property, property and the rights of others. ninth commandment states you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. The most basic intention of this commandment is to uphold justice by forbidding anyone to commit perjury. The version of the commandment we find in Deuteronomy 5 and 20 has a a slightly different emphasis which is directed against the spreading of groundless allegations commandment as such forbids both lying and the spreading of malicious falsehood. Consequently, we break this commandment not only when we lie. We break it when we engage in gossip and slander. When we distort the truth to do another person down, When we use falsehood to seek revenge. When we go along with a lie to help another person. When we fail to investigate the truth of malicious allegations, but simply accept what is commonly said. Sadly, today we live in a world of what has been described as a a world of lies, hype, and spin. Where lies, as we know, spread across the, the planet in seconds. We shouldn't be surprised that this is what the world is like, because the world is under the influence of the prince of this world, who Jesus describes as the father of lies. The great danger is that as God's people called out of this world, we still conduct ourselves in a manner, in the manner of this world. Lies can just become part and parcel of our lives. And we think nothing of of telling a lie to save our sins. We think nothing of telling a lie to, to, to gain some personal advantage. We think nothing of telling a lie to deceive someone. Christians can easily engage, of course, can't they, in gossip and slander. We all know that. and Sometimes we do it and we think it's harmless and we, and we love it because it titillates. But of course, we know gossip is power. Gossip makes us seem important. Important gossip and slander are the perpetuation of lies and of the very best, the perpetuation of half truths and distortions. It's wrong and it's dangerous. Many people have had their lives destroyed by gossip. And once we say something about someone else, we simply don't know where that's going to end. What kind of a society would we we live in if we knew that people told the truth? What kind of a society would we live in if people only said things about others that are true, that are kind, that are edifying? The Tenth Commandment states, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant or ox or donkey or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. It's the final commandment. And while Francis Schaeffer says it describes the hub of the whole matter, it's without doubt one of the, one of the most neglected, if not the most neglected commandment of the ten. Francis Zeve was a famous 16th century Jesuit missionary he remarked that he had heard men confess to every sin he could think of. And he confessed to some things that he hadn't thought of. But he said he never heard anyone confess to covetousness. I wonder when was the last time any of us confessed to covetousness? When was the last time any of us confessed to covetousness? Well, what is covetousness? Well, Well, covetousness, the word can be translated as desire, which in and of itself is not necessarily something sinful. Indeed, it's something that can be commended. It's good to desire certain things. What turns ordinary desire into covetousness, however, is the overwhelming longing to have something that does not belong to us. The overwhelming desire to have something that belongs to someone else. Again, here's a commandment that takes us beyond the external. It takes us into our interior world. It's easy, perhaps, to see when someone commits idolatry or murder or theft or adultery. Indeed, it's possible for us to externally keep the commandments. This commandment takes us beyond the externals of law-keeping and challenges us again about the very motivations of our hearts. Because this commandment has to do with the motivations of our hearts. It underpins all the other commandments. And if we break any of the other nine commandments, it's because we've broken this commandment first. If we take what rightly belongs to another person, whether it belongs to God, his worship, his glory, his name, or the day he is given, or we take what rightly belongs to another person, their honor, their life, their husband, their wife, their property, their, their, their justice. We do so because we've first of all broken this tenth commandment. We've first of all set our hearts upon something that belongs to someone else. Well, when we consider this commandment, it again perhaps seems strange to us. We're perhaps not going to covet someone else's donkey this morning. Or call it uh, someone else's uh, manservant. So so how does this translate into our world? These terms that are used in this commandment. It forbids us coveting another's security. forbids us coveting another person's wealth. Another person's relationships. Another person's leisure. Another person's status. It forbids us coveting these things because they're not ours. And it may lead us to take actions to claim those things for ourselves. But above all, it forbids us coveting these things because it leads us to set our hearts and our desires on those things that would readily take the place of God in our lives. The challenge of this commandment is not simply to avoid longing for and desiring the things that belong to others. The challenge of this commandment is to be satisfied in God alone. It is not to envy what others have and think that that would make up for what's lacking in our lives if only we had that, if only we were like them. It is to look to God alone to bring us peace, satisfaction, joy, joy, security, and contentment. What kind of a society would we live in if we were not driven by covetous desire? What kind of a society would it be if we lived contented and godly lives? People today, as I say, reject the commandments of God. Oh, they're they're so old-fashioned, they're so outdated, they're so legalistic, they're so repressive. But look carefully at these commandments. What kind of a society would we live in if children honored their parents? If people valued human life? If people honored marriage? If people did not steal? If people told the truth? If people were not driven by their covetous desires? of those things that belong to other people. What kind of a society would it be? Well, it would be the world as God intended it to be. It's not, of course, the world we have, but let's be honest, it's the world that we long for. All around us today we hear cries for a fair and a just society. How can we have a fair and a just society? By heeding God's design for society. It's the world we long for. But it's the world we cannot have because we reject the law of God. But as God's people, it is the world that those who trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior will one day inhabit. As He establishes forever His eternal kingdom. What is that eternal kingdom like? It's one of righteousness, it's one of justice, it's one of joy. As we saw last week when we looked at the commandments, they remind us, don't they, of our shortcomings. They remind us that we are lawbreakers. These commandments, they take us beyond the the superficial and take us down to our hearts. And we see there the corruption that lies there. And perhaps as we have considered these commandments, you've been convicted of your sinfulness in breaking these commandments. You may even feel a bit crushed this morning by what you've, uh, what you've heard. Well, that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing if it leads you to repent of your sin and to once again seek the forgiveness that comes by God's grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And to remember again this morning that our salvation is founded not upon what we have done. It's founded upon what Jesus has done. It is founded upon his finished work upon the cross. Not our ability to keep the Ten Commandments. And today we rejoice in that. We give thanks to God for that. For his grace. This top lady old, old hymn states, Not the labour of my hands can fulfil thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All could never sin erase. Thou must save, and thou alone. And in a few moments we're going to gather together around the Lord's table. We're going to gather again and remember the, the new covenant. Sealed in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give thanks to God for the indescribable gift of his Son. Who kept the law in its entirety. Who obeyed it perfectly. Who fulfilled it completely in his death. And rejoice, as Jonathan said, right at the outset. In that salvation that comes to us by grace. How we are in need of grace. So as we eat the bread and drink the wine together, let us give thanks to God for this. As we do that, we're going to begin our approach to the table by singing together the song that's going to appear on the overhead that reminds us of this amazing grace and the freedom that we have received in God, from God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's keep our seats as we sing this song.